This, this is the second, second Story Podcast. On this week's Second Story Podcast, Second Story company member Darwin Jones performed this story at the Second Story New Year's Eve Bash at Cafe Bocce, downtown Chicago. This story was curated by Amanda Delheimer Diamond, with performance direction by Thrissa Hoditz and live music from Second Story's house band Seeking Wonderland. With his story titled Scaredy Cat, this is Darwin Jones. I was eight years old when it happened. Asleep in my basement bedroom. In the middle of the night, I rolled over and I saw a flash of light. I thought it was lightning. Maybe a summer storm rolling through. I looked toward my window, one of those small ones high on the wall. In Chicago, they're called Garden View. In Pilot Knob, Missouri, they're called Basement Windows. And I saw that it wasn't lightning, it was a beam of light. Someone was crouched outside my window, pointing a flashlight into my room. The beam slowly traveled the wall, coming toward me, and I scrambled out of bed, knowing that whoever that was, I didn't want them to see me. I hit the floor, and the circle of light hit the center of my mattress, right where I had been less than a second before. My heart was beating rapid fire. I was confused, I was scared, my mind was spinning. I mean, I was eight years old. I ducked as the beam of light went over my head and across my nightstand. I stared, trying to see beyond the light, but could only make out his shape. He was big. Then the flashlight went off. In the moonlight, I saw the man stand. I watched as he lifted one foot, swung it back, and kicked the glass. It didn't break, so he brought his foot back again. He was trying to break in. Someone was breaking into my house. I unwedged my body and I frantically scooted backwards, slipping out of my room, quickly crawling beneath the laundry table, making my way to the stairs. I ran, screaming for my mom, for my brothers and sisters, but the house was silent. I flipped on the kitchen light and ran to the phone. A list of numbers hung next to it, and although I wasn't tall enough to see the majority of the names, the number on the bottom was all I needed. Fred. Fred lived across the street in a small apartment above the gas station. I hit the digits quick, hard. He answered, his voice thick with sleep, and I told him everything. It sounded like a scary movie. Then I hung up. I ran to the living room and I hid behind the drapes. I kept my eyes pointed across the street, locked on Fred's door. Come on, come on, come on, I whispered. Finally, he emerged. His hair was pushed to one side, he was shirtless, he hadn't taken the time to put, zip up his pants. I ran from my hiding spot. By the time I threw open the front door, Fred was on the porch, holding a gun. I'd never seen a handgun in real life. In Pilot Knob, we had BB guns, we had pellet guns, we had 22s, but we didn't have handguns. Seeing it made everything very real to me. See. Everything that I told Fred, everything that I told you just now, well, I lied. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't really want to lie to you, but I really needed you to understand how scared I was. <laughs> this is what really happened. <laughs> My mom worked two jobs. 
days waitressing at Mimosa Restaurant and nights at Brown Shoe Factory. While my mom was at the factory, she thought her kids were safe and sound at home, the older ones babysitting the younger. But come on, nine kids at home with no one to answer to? Yeah, nine kids. Within minutes of my mother driving off, the house was full of activity. Television on in the living room, radios blaring in bedrooms both upstairs and down, people calling dibs on the phone. You see, while my mom worked, the Jones household was governed by the strict rule of, you don't tell on me, I won't tell on you. <laughs> now, while I very much honored this rule and would never dream of tattling on my brothers and sisters, it was a bit unfair. After all, my big sin as an eight-year-old was staying up past my bedtime. But my siblings, they were leaving the house. They were going out into the world to smooch on boyfriends and girlfriends. They were going to play video games at Carlene's Fantasy World. They were going out rabble-rousing, whatever that was. Even Eddie, who was only a year older than me, was going to catch night crawlers or to steal redeemable soda bottles from back porches. So while there was no way on God's green earth that I would ever tattle on one of my brothers and sisters, it was also important that I be duly compensated for my allegiance. And this is where the little future auditor in me kicked in. I kept a mental checklist of every sibling owed in exchange for my silence. I carried my imaginary clipboard about ensuring that each of them were prepared to pay up. Ellen, my oldest sister, owed me one pitcher of Kool-Aid chilled in the refrigerator. Now that may seem like she was getting off easy, but it was a strategic move on my part. Ellen was oldest. She was often left in charge. Lester had to take, out my, take over my usual chore for one week, taking out the trash. I hated taking out the trash. Jason owed me one Hot Wheels car, preferably with doors or a hood that opened. With Jesse, I got Trump ability on everything that he watched on television, which meant even during American Bandstand, I could change the channels. Fanny let me have all the loose change in her purse, but it had to be at least $1.27. A dollar for candy, 25 cents, Pepsi. Two cents, tax. <laughs> Dee Dee promised to play at least two boards, board games with me anytime I wanted, and Drain, I can't really remember what Drain gave me, actually. And that left Eddie. Eddie was hard to negotiate with. It came down to this. I promised not to tattle on him, and he promised not to punch me in the face. <laughs> now, Everything was going just as expected on that particular night until I went upstairs. Fanny, Dee Dee, and Drain were picking out different outfits, saying, yeah, you should wear that, or no, that's ugly. And I could tell they were planning something much bigger than usual. Gina's having an all-night skate party, Fanny said. Yeah, it's her birthday, Dee Dee added. All night? Well, this was going to cost them more than $1.27, two games of checkers, and whatever Drain gave me. And I was about to mention just that when they totally floored me. Look, Drain said, we got you something. From beneath her bed, she brought out a black plastic suitcase, and I knew exactly what it was. This was the newest technology of the land, the one thing coveted by all society and rented out from such upscale places as Casey's General Store and Kroger's Customer Service Desk. This 
was a VCR. And they had even rented me a movie, a scary movie. I love to be scared. My heart would beat. Goosebumps would appear on my arms. Joyful anxiety would rise in my chest as I waited for monsters to jump from the lake or killers to jump from the shadows. Now, I typically enjoyed the real blood and gut stuff like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But the movie they got me, well, it fell into the this-could-really-happen category which was my big mistake. The title was When a Stranger Calls, and it's about this babysitter who has put the kids to bed for the night, and then the phone rings. This creepy voice asks, have you checked the children? At first she thinks it's some kind of prank, but the calls keep coming and she gets really scared, calling the cops and everything, but the phone keeps ringing. Have you checked the children? Then when she's about bonkers with fear, she sees that the children are missing and she finds out that the call is coming from inside the house. I lost my shit. The fucking call was coming from inside the house. And that creepy voice in the movie, have you checked the children? Have I checked the children? I was the children. And I was completely alone in a house that had a zillion dark corners to hide in. So my fear took over and I called Fred. And I lied. I told him someone was trying to break in. I mean, what was I supposed to tell him? That I just didn't want to be alone? That I was a scaredy cat? Oh, heck no. But in that moment when I saw the gun, <laughs> that's when movie-generated fear was replaced by real fear. I realized what I had done. By calling Fred over, I had broken the Jones household rule. You don't tell on me, I won't tell on you. Where is everybody, Fred asked. Oh, one thing I didn't tell you. Fred wasn't just my neighbor. For one hot minute a few years earlier, Fred had actually been my stepfather. <laughs> just long enough for my mom to figure out that he'd never leave his first true love, the bottle. So of course he would notice that everybody was gone, that the house was empty. Better call your mom. I began to cry. I had just tattled on all eight of my siblings collectively. My rapid heartbeat returned. How was I going to get out of this? Why had I lied? Fred was on the phone with my mom. All my brothers and sisters were going to get in trouble and it was all my fault. My throat began to close up. I was frantic. A panic attack was coming on. I was on the verge of a full-blown nervous breakdown and then I passed out. No, really, I passed out. <laughs> you awake? I woke up the next morning to Eddie's voice, and in a split second, my fear revved up. Hey, you awake? I feign sleep, and I imagine him standing over me with his fists clenched, ready to deliver the ultimate punch to my face as soon as I opened my eyes. And then I thought, this would just be the start of it. I'd have to get back all the Hot Wheels. Dee Dee would never play another board game with me. I'd have to take out the trash forever. 
Never again would I get to choose what television program to watch, and worst, and most immediate of all, Eddie was gonna punch me. They were probably all going to punch me. Jason with his knuckle punch atop the head, Jesse with his chest beat punches on the chest, uh, Fanny with her weird fling under the elbow punch. I don't know what that was. And Eddie, Eddie was like a crazy person when he punched. He'd punch in the eye, in the ear, in the Adam's apple. He didn't care. We're all grounded except for you. I couldn't take it anymore. I quickly rolled over and trying to escape his reach, I pushed up against the wall. Wow, you're really scared, huh? This is it. This is where he clocked me a good one. I cringed, waiting for it to come. But then I noticed that he didn't look mad. How big was he? What? The guy that tried to break in. Were you scared? Eddie believed the lie. <laughs> this was it. This was my way out. They couldn't be mad at me if someone had actually tried to break in. And I bet my older brothers and sisters felt absolutely terrible. After all, they left me, an eight-year-old, alone while some madman was roaming the streets of Pilot Knob. This was perfect. Yeah, I said. I've never been more scared in all my life. Darwin Jones has been a Second Story company member since May of 2012. His writing has been featured in the Windy City Times, Hair Trigger, and on stage at Reading Under the Influence. For more Second Story, join us for our upcoming performances. We'll be at Webster's Wine Bar in Lincoln Park on January 13th and 14th of 2013, or at the Underground Wonder Bar in Chicago's Gold Coast on January 26th. For tickets to these events, or for more information about Second Story, visit our website at secondstory.com. That's 2ndstory.com. Second Story podcasts are brought to you in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the City Arts Program, the Arts Works Fund, and the Chicago Community Foundation. Podcast support from Amanda Delheimer-Diamond, Bobby Budrisky, the Second Story Publishing Committee, Trissa Hoditz, Nick Kawahara, Mikhail Fixel, Eric Hazen, Danielle Ezel, Sherry Pentamone, C.P. Chang, and myself. I'm Ozzie Totten, and this is Second Story. Thanks for listening.